our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Aaron, if you want to come up, we'll pray for you. Might I say also free books out front? Forgot to mention that in my tears. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for Aaron. We thank you for Aaron and Caitlin and the love that they have for you, Jesus. We thank you for his preparation. We thank you for his joy. He is such a blessing to be around. Him and his wife bring our family such great joy. We thank you for them. We know how much his heart wants to um, be used to speak to us. Um, God, we pray that our hearts are open, and no matter how we come, bitter and broken or, or joyful and excited, God, help us be open to hear exactly what you want us to hear today, this very day, at this moment in time, in this place. We know that you will speak to us, each of us, differently but beautifully through Aaron. We hope he has great joy as he brings your message. We thank you for him. In your name, amen. And well, thank you, Amy. <clears throat> um, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. It's good to see all of you here today. Uh, make sure after the gathering, if you see Scambry, to give them a high five and a word of thanks for uh, all the the decoration that they've done and all the work that they put in. I'm sure they could even point you to one of their helpers for you to thank as well. But I know they put in so much work every year for all the Advent decorations. Um, I want to ask you a question to start off this morning. How many of you here have ever been through a season of life that was so difficult, so painful, that you thought, I would never wish this experience on anyone. I had a few of those when I was in college. Um, the fall of my sophomore year, I was at a weekend retreat playing just some pickup football with my friends. And on one play, I go to, you know, plant my foot in the ground so I can turn. But instead of turning, I just crumple to the ground in a heap. Uh, within about 30 minutes, my knee is, you know, not quite double in size. Uh, and I'm hobbling around the, the lobby of this little lodge we were staying at. We get back to campus, I uh, get an MRI, doctor says, I've got a torn ACL. And I thought for a moment, you know, maybe this is kind of neat. You know, I thought this is something that only happens to elite athletes, <laughs> but it actually can also happen to regular out-of-shape dudes running around on the grass. Yeah. To be honest, the, the injury itself wasn't that painful. I don't say that to put on like a tough guy face or anything. Um, my buddies were, were telling me, oh man, like I hope you didn't tear your ACL or anything serious like that. I said, no, there's, there's no way that happened. If that happened, it would hurt way, way more. But what did hurt way more was having it repaired. I can just really honestly vividly remember... Um, sitting in the armchair for a few weeks recovering. Even with the different pain medicine that the doctor gave me, uh, there were never moments where I felt good. It was only just feeling less terrible. And then after that was the rehab process. Um, and I know we've got some physical therapists in here. 
that I love very much. But every time I would go to that clinic, I knew they were there to help me, help repair and restore my body, every stretch, every exercise. But what it felt like every time I walked through the doors was uh, entering some kind of medieval torture chamber. I can remember thinking in those moments, this is awful. I wouldn't wish this on anyone, not even my worst enemy, not even someone who plays for Kansas. Then in my, my junior year of college, I got myself fired from waiting tables. The, the details of that story will make a great sermon illustration some other time, so I won't go into it now. Uh, but I learned there's, you know, even though there's a lot of restaurants in town, Columbia's small enough that the restaurant managing world is, there's a lot of cross-pollination there. Uh, a lot of restaurant managers know each other because so many of them have worked with each other at some point. So I'd go and I'd apply for these other jobs, and when I got there, they would already know why I got fired from my last job. It's kind of blackballed from restaurants for a while. And in fact, I actually went somewhere a month ago. This happened when I was in college. I went somewhere a month ago, though, and the manager is someone I knew from working back in the day, and he goes, hey, remember that time you got fired? That was pretty wild. I was like, still, still? But uh, for several months after that, uh, I really, I struggled to find a job, uh, so I struggled to pay my rent, some of my other expenses, and my self-worth was just really in the toilet. Um, applying for jobs and getting rejected for jobs is just a really, really, really terrible feeling. And so for all that time, I, was just, I felt angry and sad and lonely. Eventually, I was talking to um, Caitlin on the phone, my now wife, and she said, hey, I... I think you might be depressed. And I didn't realize it yet because I just didn't really have that category in my head. Um, but I think she was absolutely right. And, you know, looking back, there's a part of me that, you know, is somewhat thankful for that experience because now I can empathize better. Uh, I can empathize with people who, who go through those kinds of feelings. Uh, but it was still another season where I thought, this is awful. And... I hope no one else has to go through something like this. And I know there are people, even people here this morning, who have been through worse physical pain, worse emotional pain than I have, and you can probably relate to that sentiment. Uh, well, church, I want you to know that Jesus also had experiences like that in his life, experiences where he thought the same thing, where on the other side of these moments, he thought, I hope no one has to go through what I just went through. And I'm not just talking about his death on the cross, though that certainly is one of those moments. We'll look at one of those instances today as we walk through the last line of the Lord's Prayer this morning. Uh, but before we get into that, I think we should make sure we understand how this last clause fits into the rest of the Lord's Prayer. As we read here in verse 13, Jesus tells his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Actually, it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or some of your translations might say, deliver us from the evil one. Now, there have been volumes and volumes over the last 2,000 years written about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, different breakdowns about how the different elements of the prayer maybe shape our categories for prayer. But one commentator I read this week, he said there's two parts 
in the Lord's Prayer, the you part and the us part. The you part is the first two verses. Father, you are in heaven. May your name be hallowed. Would you bring your kingdom on earth? Would your will be done here? Then the rest are these us passages. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts and lead us and deliver us from temptation and evil. For the last few weeks, we've been in these us passages, asking God to meet not just our personal needs, but our corporate needs as a church body. These us passages. Then at the beginning, you have that and. Every word is important. The and, it connects this phrase to the two that came before it. God, give us daily bread and forgive our debts and lead and deliver us. Forgiveness and deliverance both flow out of what we need every day from God. We pray, God, every day would you give us what we need to physically sustain us. God, every day would you forgive our sins And for our passage this morning, God, every single day when we wake up in the morning, we need your leadership and your guidance and your direction to take us off the path of temptation and away from the one who would do us harm. We pray that for ourselves. We pray it for each other. That's where we find ourselves as we finish out the Lord's Prayer. And just a quick word about the end as we begin. Bobby mentioned this briefly last week, but I think it bears repeating this week as we wrap up too. Why do we always stop at the end? Why do we never finish out with the yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? Amen. Well, to put it simply, that's just not in the earliest copies of the Bible that we have. But interestingly enough, the fact that some versions have this closing line tacked on at the end tells us something about how the Lord's Prayer has been used historically by the church. Several weeks ago when we started, I said the Lord's Prayer was something that was corporately recited by the church. And this is one of the ways that we know that. Because when our sisters and our brothers from the past read this together, prayed this together in their gatherings, they had the same thought that we do. Boy, this ends kind of abruptly. Shouldn't we like praise God a little bit at the end of our prayer too. So you're not alone in in feeling that abruptness. Uh, But they added this last part as they recited corporately. Over time, that phrase happened to make its way into the different copies of the Bible as people were writing them and passing them on to future generations. It's as simple as that. So even though those statements, they're absolutely positively true and beautiful, that's why we stop at the end of the deliverance clause. Speaking of the deliverance clause, let's get back into it. Every day, as just one slice of our daily bread, we as individuals, and just as much as a people, we need to be led away from temptation, and we need to be delivered from evil and the evil one. So let's spend this morning talking about both temptation and God's deliverance. This first phrase, it can, honestly, it can be a little bit scandalous to some of us. Jesus tells us to pray, Father, don't lead us into temptation. It almost sounds like Jesus is saying that God is the one who leads us into temptation. But if that were the case, like, shouldn't we just assume that because God loves us and wants us to be Christ-like, that he would not do that? 
just as a rule? It's a great question, um, actually. The Bible tells us later in the book of James, chapter one, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. I think, hopefully I said this in the past, uh, but James is such a great letter to read side by side with the Sermon on the Mount. It's really clear that James was deeply impacted by his half-brother's teaching and served the church by showing us how to live that out. So keep your finger in the book of James, because I promise you will be back. But in this verse, James ensures his fellow Christians that God is never tempted to do evil himself, and he's never the one who tempts us to do evil. That's a biblical principle. God is never tempted to do evil. He's never the one who tempts us to do evil. This should, it's comforting to know that, but it also maybe gives rise to a couple of other questions. Where does temptation come from? What's Jesus getting at with this prayer then? For the answer to that first question, let's just keep reading in the book of James. Verse 14 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So it isn't that God tempts us. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We're tempted when we take our eyes off of God and let them wander to the things of this world that our sinful nature still desires. Okay, then if God isn't the one tempting us to begin with, why does Jesus have us pray not to be led into temptation? Bear with me for a minute. This word temptation we see here, it actually encompasses a bit more than what James is describing. Along with temptation, this word also includes the biblical concept of testing, testing. Now, I know what you're thinking. Come on, isn't that a little bit of a cop-out? Like, God doesn't tempt, but he does test? What's the difference? But throughout the biblical narrative, God often tests his people. The difference between temptation and testing is nuanced. It's almost like a two sides of the same coin situation, but I don't know if we could say every temptation is a test from God. It really has to do with the origin and the purpose of the event. So like we saw in James, temptation most often originates in our sinful desires to draw us away from God. And God tests are presented to us by God for the purpose of drawing us into deeper relationship and dependence on him. The difference between a temptation and a test. So just throughout the Torah, those first five books of the Old Testament, we see God testing his people all the time. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they're tested at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Are they going to trust that God and his commandments are good and lead to life? Or are they going to give in to them to the temptation of the serpent and the desires of their own heart? Are they going to seize the fruit and decide what's good and evil on their own. Later in Genesis, Abraham, he's waited and waited for years and years, and he's tried and tried these different methods to bring about the son that God promised him, hurting people all along the way. Eventually, God does bless Abraham with that son that he promised. And then he tests Abraham 
by asking him to sacrifice that son? Will Abraham trust that God will prove true to his promise? That he'll sustain this son, bring him back from the dead even? Or will he once again try to preserve the promise by his own power? The entire book of Numbers is basically test after test for God's people. Even after experiencing the Exodus event, firsthand, seeing the waters parted, all the plagues, being delivered from Egyptian slavery, the people of Israel are continually failing their tests. Each one designed to see if they will continue to trust God, follow him into the land of blessing, or whether they're going to mutiny against him with grumbling and complaining and try and turn back to Egypt. They do it every chapter, basically. Temptation and testing can be terrible, tough experiences. Jesus implores us to pray that we would not have to go through what he went through in his life. Because if we flip back just a couple chapters, we see that Jesus himself went through a time of temptation and testing. I know it seems like it's been a long time since we went through that passage on a Sunday morning, uh, but literally, these passages are basically back to back. You have that beginning of Matthew 4, Jesus' temptation. In the back half of Matthew 4, Jesus begins his ministry. Then the Sermon on the Mount, this three-chapter-long teaching block of Jesus. Basically, though, they're right next to each other. Temptation, beginning of ministry, here we are. If you ask me, I don't think it's a stretch to read this phrase of the Lord's Prayer side-by-side with Jesus' temptation experience. After all, let's look at the similarities between the language used there. In our verse today, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Compare that with, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You see, in both instances, we see elements of God's leadership, temptation, spiritual evil. It is interesting to note that though the Spirit leads, it's the evil one who tempts. God's not tempting. It can be easy for us to think that because Jesus was fully God, that you know, these temptations were easy for him to overcome, that they weren't that difficult. He's fully God after all. But the fact that Jesus tells us to pray that we wouldn't experience what he experienced should tell us a lot. What were Jesus' tests? Real quickly, the devil approaches Jesus, tempts him to turn stones into bread after 40 days of fasting. Is Jesus going to fulfill his commitment to his father, or is he going to use his divine power for his own benefit? We rarely, if ever, see Jesus do something like that. I can't think of a time like that off the top of my head. The devil tempts Jesus to jump from the temple and have angels catch him. Is Jesus going to uh, trust in the identity that he has from the Father? Or is he going to make the Father prove his identity as the Son of God? The devil tempts Jesus to worship him in exchange for all the kingdoms of the world. Is Jesus going to trust the Father's plan for redemption? Or is he going to pursue the kingdoms by circumventing the cross? I think often we take for granted when the book of Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every aspect 
every respect, has been tempted as we were, yet without sin. In fact, Jesus knows better than anyone the force of tempting and testing. You see, when you and I, when we give in to our temptations, when we fail our tests, it's like we're in the the ocean, we're on the shore, and the waves hit us, and we're knocked down. But when temptation is resisted, we stand there, we take the full force of the wave, yet are not knocked down. If you're knocked down, you didn't experience the full force of the wave. There was more to come. But Jesus was never knocked down by the wave. You and I were often knocked down by the waves over the course of our lives. Jesus was never knocked down. He experienced the fullness of every temptation that came before him in life. And every time he experienced its fullness and withstood it. So Jesus tells us to pray not to experience the thing that he went through. But at the same time, again, James tells us this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Because the nature of testing, that when we're delivered through to the other side unscathed, our faith is stronger and our relationship with God is deeper. And we're actually able to pass those tests. Jesus continues. He teaches us next to pray, deliver us from evil. Again, some of your translations or maybe the way you memorized the Lord's Prayer when you were a kid may say, deliver us from the evil one. I'm partial to just from evil because James teaches us that uh, most oftentimes our temptations arise from our own evil desires. But it's also reasonable to pray from the evil one, especially in light of Jesus' temptation experience with the devil. So let's talk about God's deliverance as well. We'll look at two verses quickly about God's deliverance from temptation in 1 Corinthians 10 and 2 Peter chapter 1. From 1 Corinthians 10, we read, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be, that you may be able to endure it. And then over to 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted, us to, uh, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The apostles make it clear in their letters. Whenever we face temptation, God will first provide us with a way out, and second, the means to make our escape. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you have what you need to live a holy life and overcome temptation by his power, by his spirit. It's true. It's also so good that it almost feels like it can't be true, right? Because if you're someone who experiences temptation in your life, I think that's probably everyone here, it doesn't always feel like we have a way out. It doesn't always feel like we have what we need to make our escape, does it? But how often are we taking advantage 
of the deliverance that God provides, these ways out. Well, for starters, it would really help us to know what God has given us to overcome temptation, to deliver us from temptation. I'm just going to warn you, these tools that I'm going to tell you about probably aren't the tools that you would have chosen, but I can guarantee you that they're the most effective tools for the job if we'll apply them to our lives. These are your tools, the gospel and community. Let's talk about those real quick. Um, Kevin and Darren and I, we were hanging out, having coffee sometime last week, and something came up while we were talking. A lot of times around here, we'll say uh, in our application parts of the sermon that we just need to believe the gospel. That's often, that's a, a frequent application point. Just believe the gospel. And it doesn't always make the most sense, let's be honest. There's a way in which that statement is absolutely 100% unshakably true. And there's another way where it's not wrong, but it's incomplete. If someone in the pulpit says, we need to believe the gospel, and what you hear is, I need to uh, double down on my mental affirmation of a propositional truth statement, then yeah, I, I can see how that is maybe a confusing way to fight temptation. Now, mentally affirming, you know, the death and resurrection of Jesus as a historical event is vitally important. Do not miss that. Those are the facts of the gospel proclamation. But what I also want you to hear from now on when someone says, believe the gospel, is this. Believe in Put your faith in and trust your life with the cosmically transformative claim that Jesus is king and that that king died and took the punishment for our sins, rose again to defeat death and temptation and the evil one so that we could graciously receive a place in that kingdom forever. Pledge your allegiance to and live a life of loyalty to God's Messiah, his chosen king. That's not just a historical fact to be acknowledged. That is a worldview-shaking and heart-transforming claim. Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers, he wrote a book, I love the title of this book, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I think maybe the title says it all, honestly. But in that book, he writes this, and I've paraphrased it a little bit so that the English makes sense in our ears. There are two ways in which a person may attempt to displace from their heart its love for the world, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so that the heart will be prevailed upon simply to remove its regards from an object that is not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, say Jesus, as more worthy of its attachment, so the heart shall be prevailed upon not merely to resign an old affection with nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. From our natures, the former method is altogether incompetent and ineffectual, and the latter method will alone suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart that is from the wrong affection that domineers over it. We're not just talking about thinking the things of this world are silly, though they they are. We're talking about seeing Jesus more clearly and more powerfully. 
Understanding the facts of the gospel message is one thing, but to fight temptation, we must see Jesus as more beautiful than the thing that tempts us. When we embrace this, not just with our minds, but fully with our hearts, we'll begin to desire him and his kingdom more and the things of this world less. And that life of loyalty, it will drive our hearts towards Jesus and away from temptation. When we feed the hungry, when we clothe the needy, when we give to the poor, when we pray, pray for and serve our brothers and sisters and bless our community, basically, when we live like Jesus, we learn to love him more. Temptation will almost certainly not leave us entirely during our lives. But the stronger our desire for Jesus, the weaker our temptations will be in relation to us. Here's that second tool then that God has given us to deliver us from temptation and evil. Gospel community. The church, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, this is one of the us verses in the Lord's Prayer. You know, again, if we were choosing, we probably, this probably wouldn't be our tool of choice. If we wanted a tool, if we wanted to pick our favorite tool, we might ask God, how about like a double dose of pure willpower. Actually, make it a triple. We love nothing more than to be able to fight temptation on our own, right? It sure would protect our ego, our pride, our image. But how many of us, myself included, have tried the pure willpower method only to find ourselves filled with shame and loneliness on the other side of temptation? That's why God gave us a better tool, a better way, He gave us one another. There's like 100 people in here right now, maybe. That means that God just didn't provide you with a way out. God provided you with like 100 ways out just right now. And I'm not saying it's easy, but it is effective. We talked about this at Lead School. We talked about this at the Men's Fellowship last weekend. When we have our church family around us, being open with them is like, talking with your friends before a party. You tell them, look, I'm clear-headed and I'm sober-minded right now, but if I have too much to drink, promise me that you'll take my keys. Do not let me drive home. Because when we give in to temptation, we get drunk on our own sin and we wreck our lives and the lives of people we love. So we go to our sisters and our brothers when we're sober. We tell them, hey, um, look, my spouse, my roommate... They're going to be out of town this weekend. Here are the keys to my sexual holiness. Do not let me sin against myself or my spouse and look at pornography. Hey, so um, this year's almost over. Tax season is right around the corner. Here are my keys. Help me to be honest and obey the scripture with my finances. Hey, so... Um, my kid, they're bringing someone home for Thanksgiving this year, uh, and they come from a different culture, background, social class, political party than I do. Call me an Uber. Don't let me crash these relationships with the sins of favoritism or racism or partiality. Hey, so um, I'm going to the Mizzou game on Friday, and I know that if they lose to Arkansas, I'm going to lose it. And I could let my rage out on anyone who's near me. 
let me crash on your couch, because I can't let that happen. When we're clear-headed, we're able to recognize the sins that tempt us. We have to go to our family and let them know where we are, that we need God's leadership so that they can be used by him. He put, a, he put us in each other's lives for a reason. This is one of those reasons. <clears throat> one more thing about God's deliverance. And again, this is probably not something we want to hear, but it's something we absolutely need to hear. We want to think that when God delivers us from temptation and evil, that he's just going to pluck us out of those situations and drop us somewhere safe. Sometimes he does do that. It's true. But what we see throughout Scripture most often, what we experience in our lives most often, is that God is with us and carries us through those moments. We see in Scripture, God doesn't just poof Noah into the future on the other side of the flood, but he provides a way that Noah can be safely carried through his judgment. God doesn't just zap Joseph from being a punk kid with a colorful coat to second in command in Egypt, but God is with Joseph in the pit, in slavery, in jail, and in front of Pharaoh. And the whole time, while Israel is wandering through the wilderness, failing those tests, grumbling and complaining, God never abandons them. His presence remains in the tabernacle. He keeps sending manna from heaven. He even uses a pagan prophet to pronounce blessing on them. How much more would Jesus? When he was in the wilderness, he resisted every temptation, passed every test by the power of his spirit and his word. God's spirit and God's word. God delivered him from evil, from the evil one. Jesus wants us to pray, God, don't let me go through what Jesus went through. Thankfully, while we still have and will experience temptations, we'll never have to go through the test that Jesus did because he passed it for us. All his life, he was perfectly faithful to his father's will, even in his final moments before his death. Jesus' faithfulness was tested, yet he always remained faithful. Jesus taught, I love this, Jesus taught us to pray this way because this is how he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before he died, we read about Jesus praying. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He prays like he teaches us to pray. My Father in heaven, deliver me from evil but your will be done on earth as in heaven. You see, Jesus' test in the wilderness was great, and he wants us to pray that we don't have to go through that. But Jesus faced a greater test still, one that we could never pass. So he passed it for us. He paid our sin debts. He secured God's forgiveness on our behalf. He put sin on display for the gnarly and wicked thing that it is. He made a mockery of death itself when he rose from the grave. And he shares that life daily with his disciples. It's for all those reasons that his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, you're holy, your name is beautiful and good, and we desperately need you to deliver us from the evil and temptation that we face every day. God, your word promises that you've already given us what we need to resist temptation and find a way out. God, give us the courage, give us the humility to rely on the brothers and sisters you've blessed us with. Give us the faith we need to see Jesus as more beautiful than the wicked desires we have and the faith we need to live a life of loyalty towards him. God, whether we're here this morning and we've been Christians for decades or days or we're not even sure what we believe right now, uh, transform our hearts this morning. Lord, as we continue to worship through, uh, as we continue to worship around your table, would you grant us unity with you, with one another? Uh, God, use this meal to remind us in a fresh way who you are, what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.